Welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Mike Munger. Dr. Munger is a professor of political science and director of the PPE certificate program at Duke University. He is the author of Is Capital Sustainable, published in 2019, Tomorrow 3.0, The Sharing Middleman Economy, published in 2018, and The Thing Itself, Essays on Academics, Economics, and Policy, published in 2015. Today, we're recording at Thales Academy Rollsville as part of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation's second Coolidge debate. Uh, Mike, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. It is great to be on the show. I am so thrilled uh, that we get to have a conversation today, in part uh, because your background has prepared you to uh, study things to an incredible detail. You have an amazing uh, knowledge base, but also you're one of those rare professors who is aware of how to communicate to not just other professors, but a broader audience. So I, I think I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you very much. To the extent that that's true, I used to be a professor like everyone else, but I ran for governor of North Carolina in 2008, and that gave me a chance to talk to people who didn't have to know it because it would be on the final. So I, more <laughs> professors ought to talk to real people. I, I think there's a lot of value in that. There's something about having to help people understand the importance of ideas in a, in a really quick way that becomes really helpful. I assume it also translates in, in your actual classroom experiences Absolutely. as well. No, so many professors mostly are concerned with the importance of professor, not the importance of ideas. They're just self-important. They look in the mirror and see a god. And if you, if you run for statewide office, there's a whole lot of people that don't see you as a god. I'm, I'm sure that's true. Um, tell us a little about your experiences with uh, doing televised debate. What was that like during that, uh, that governor, that bid for the governorship? Well, we actually ran ads on radio and television during the summer so that I could get into the debates. I had to get high enough in the poll numbers, so I actually stole a march. Nobody else was advertising. So we used all of our money to run ads during the summer. And then in the debates, um, at the risk of being immodest, let me say I have a certain superficial glibness, a PhD in economics, and no chance of winning. So I was able to answer the questions. And the, the Charlotte News and Observer, the headline was Munger Answers the Questions. And so that's the sort of free media that third, I ran as a libertarian. That's the sort of free media that really makes a big difference in a campaign like that. So I, I think the, the fact that I was able to answer the questions and just watch the two state-sponsored party candidates bicker was a big advantage for me. And it also, I think more professors ought to try to, if you're an economics professor, you should bankrupt a business. If you're a political science professor, you should go out and lose an election because you learn a whole lot from doing that. That is an amazing suggestion. And uh, if any of our listeners happen or watchers happen to uh, be in those fields and want to try it, please do write in at the optimistic curmudgeon 2021 at gmail.com. Let us know how that experiment goes. Uh, well, Dr. Munger, I, I wanted to focus our conversation today uh, on a few different areas. Uh, the first of those is on public choice. I've been spending the last few months in a fellowship with the Mercatus Center and learning a lot more about the different schools of economic thought. And I saw that a lot of your scholarship is focused on public choice. I wonder if you could help us first with just a, a bit of a definitional question. What exactly is public choice theory and wh where does it fit in the world of contemporary economics? I think the simplest way to think about public choice is that rules matter more than they should. 
we tend to think of a group of people making decisions and what we do is we all share our opinions and then we persuade each other and at the end we've decided. That's actually not the way things work. Usually we don't persuade other people. We have views on this. So the, the kind of premise of public choice is there's going to be disagreement, possibly principled disagreement, and yet there's still what uh, James Buchanan called gains from exchange. If we can all come up with a way where we can cooperate, so that I think some people have a misperception about public choice. Public choice doesn't say that politics is impossible or useless or evil. What public choice says is that you should have a clear-eyed view of the limits, the moral limits of politics. Rules matter more than they should. A lot of times you're going to end up sitting at a stoplight when other cars are passing in front of you, you're at a red light, but we're better off having a rule like stoplights than we are always arguing about everything. So the reason we have a constitution, the reason we have rules about majority rule is so that we can de decide things and get on to something else. Is that frustrating because sometimes we decide the wrong thing? Yes. But that's better than either not being able to decide or having anarchy where we're constantly arguing about the rules. So the key feature of public choice, and I think people are sometimes surprised about this, they're of two minds. One is, well, that's obviously true, and the other is you can't believe that that's evil. And I've heard people say, one person say both of those. It's basically that politicians are neither morally better nor worse than corporate CEOs. And voters are not necessarily smarter than consumers. So I have some debates with a friend of mine, Dan Ariely, who is a professor at Duke, who is the author of a book, Predictably Irrational. And what he tried to do was show that consumers actually don't possess enough information to be able to decide things like what breakfast cereal they're going to buy. And he says, and therefore the government should regulate. Well, gosh, Dan, wait. If people are too stupid to know what breakfast cereal to buy, how are they going to decide Middle East policy about Palestine? So why do you think that voters are smart and consumers are dumb? They're the same people. Why do you think that U.S. senators are moral and corporate CEOs are greedy? They're the same people. So that was a long answer, but that's the insight of public choice. People are basically the same. They respond to incentives and rules matter more than they should. It sounds to me like there's a there's some sort of maybe a mythological view of politicians. Kind of the the word my high school used was statesmanship. Was that we we should be aiming to have politicians who are looking to the common good and they are trying to guide the republic. Uh, some of the the older language of the ship of state being sailed by this particularly equipped crew, and we're sailing the ship of state into safe harbor. And then we sort of think of politicians in that light of nobility. Well, that, that's how I, at one point, thought about politicians and, and as a high school student, early college student. But over the last 15 years or so, I, I don't have very many people I can point to in practical politics that I would say, ah, there is this mythological statesman in the real world. Instead, it seems to me that politicians are much more like you're describing. I mean, they are, they either have, they have their special interest groups that they have to uh, pay homage to because that was part of how they got elected. They know what issues their base is concerned about, so they have to make sure they toe the party line on that case. And they also have certain things that their party that they're affiliated with seems to push forward as this is the big emphasis in this congressional session that we're going to get this bill through. And in all of that, they do seem, some politicians also seem to have certain ideals that they would like to advance or they would like to change, but that's all kind of in the mix, which seems to me that 
the politician as this uh, noble figure leading the state is more of a myth than a fact. Is that is that accurate? Is that an accurate depiction or or no? Well, the public choice view would be to try to have it both ways. It would be great if we could find such politicians. Let's not assume that it's impossible. However, rules matter more than they should. So as James Madison said in Federalist 51, and he actually used your metaphor, we cannot always assume that a wise statesman will be at the helm of the ship of state. So we have to design rules that work even if the helmsman is bad. So let's look for helmsmen that are good, but let's pick rules that will allow us still to govern ourselves if we have a bad helmsman. And I have to admit, I've had a good deal of fun with this because my friends on the left would always say, wait, it wouldn't be possible for someone really bad to become president. So that used to be <laughs> hypothetical until November 8, 2016, when all my friends, whatever, you know, whatever we think about Trump, sure. all of my friends on the left thought he was not a wise helmsman. <laughs> so it was no longer hypothetical for them. And yet what has surprised me is that they're still willing to think we have a, we should have concentra concentrated power in the presidency because they assume their side will always win. And I worry that people on the right do that also. So having a relatively weak decentralized government, the reason public choice would argue for a relatively weak decentralized government is that we cannot always assume that an enlightened helmsman will be available. And to be fair, Madison said that in Federalist 51. That's the original design of the Constitution. Oh, that is, I guess, really interesting, because in part, I think people on the left were very upset about Trump, and I think today, people on the right are very upset about Biden. They, they seem to have a but similar... But they both want powerful presidencies. They do, and I've... I've been really I've been reading in the past week a couple different uh, reports on the National Conservative Conference that happened down in, in Florida. And it seems that there are a lot of people who want to claim the label of conservatism. And the reason they want that label is so that they can get control of the administrative state. I think it's the same, same sort of idea you were describing about the, the presidency. Well, a powerful president is great if we our can guy do, We there. can do good things. That, that, that seems to be the goal, but is is that even? I, I'm not sure that that's even possible. That the but rather than concentrating that power, we need kind of as you're describing, we need we need rules that mean that no one group has all the power. Well, now you're switching gears. So there's there's really two objections. One is I can't be sure that my side will always be in charge. Now you're making what I think is a more powerful objection. Let's suppose my side is in charge. Even then, the problem is that the state lacks two really key things. One is accurate information, which can usually be achieved only through the price mechanism. So the Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek showed that markets, by generating uh, prices, give us information about uh, the relative scarcity of resources and w how we should direct resources to their most socially productive uses. And then even if you think that bureaucrats have accurate information, why would you think they have the correct incentives? Even if the president is your boy or your girl, the bureaucrats are going to be operating on their own incentives, which don't involve customer service. By definition, bureaucrats cannot be fired. And so the, the result is without the profit test, we don't have either the correct incentives or the correct information. So I actually think that's the more powerful argument. Because, you know, saying, well, we won't always win, people say, well, we need to win then. 
we need to work harder so my side win. No, even if your side wins, government sucks. Yes, 100%. Total agreement. That is like, uh, it, it, it mildly terrifies me to think that there are people uh, really probably, I would say roughly 35 and younger who seem to be really intrigued at the idea that the problem isn't that we've concentrated so much authority and power in unelected bureaucrats who run the administrative state. The problem is that we don't control it. If we controlled it, we could make our own utopia. And we will. They're sure of it. <laughs> it hasn't worked yet for anyone who's ever tried that project. So many centuries. And it never works. This time's going to be different. Oh, I wonder if we can bend this back around to back to public choice analysis. We might come back. I, I want to pick your brain about socialism uh, here to, in a but, moment, to, too. To be fair, yeah. what we just said is really the key element of public choice. Okay. How so? Draw, draw that out. How, is that, how does that apply kind of in a broader analysis? Well, the public choice is an analysis of the functioning of non-market institutions. And so the, there's in economics, there's this uh, notion of what's called market failure. So there's imperfections in markets and we, we have ways that the state should act to correct market failures. But the problem is that that's a comparison of markets as they are and the state as I can imagine it. So what public choice did was said, well, let's do the same thing with government. Let's analyze government failure. Let's look at the fundamental conditions under which government can carry out the functions that we want to assign to it. And it turns out that there are many, many forms of government failure. They're broad, they're deep, and they're unsolvable. So that means that you're doing something more like a comparison um, between markets as they are and the government as it is and then case by case, you're making a decision. Now, I understand that it's going to be hard for us to make that correctly, but let's at least put them on an equal footing. Mm -hmm. So I'm afraid that I have become famous for my spirit animal, the unicorn. Because I ask people, do unicorns exist? And their first thought is, well, no. And then I say, okay, close your eyes and picture a unicorn. I see a white a white horse with an orange horn on the front and there's rainbows all around it, so do you. So actually unicorns do exist because we can imagine them. That's almost everyone's conception of the state. They imagine what the state will do and that's better than what they see markets doing. And then when we fall short of that, their answer is always we need to elect better people. Not good government is a unicorn. It doesn't exist. So public choice then is an attempt to apply a more realistic approach to analyzing the government as it is rather than a theoretical model of what government should be and even how then the secondary question of how do we get to that imaginary state? Well, how do we get even to the best state that we can manage? Public choice people for the most part are not anarchists. Hmm. So they do think that there should be some kind of minimal state defending property rights, maybe national defense. So the, the way you put it is right. What are the things the state can do and how can we create rules that actually get us to that relatively constrained, not overly optimistic uh, or ambitious destination? 
Well, on that note, let me ask you about kind of our current moment in the economy. Uh, I think we have conducted a really interesting, massive economic experiment in really the globe, but more particularly the United States. We attempted to say that an organic economy that has grown up over between 200 and 500 years, depending on, I suppose, your, your definition, uh, combined with some uh, level of regulation and level of individual action, that we could sort of freeze that. and. We tried to add some injections of cash into the, this frozen economy on a couple different uh, moments in the last 18 months. Uh, but now it seems like the, the rebooting has begun, but headlines for the last two months have been filled with statements about supply chain shortages, labor shortages, and it seems that the big outcry is, or the, the expectation is that the president should be able to somehow fix all of this. What, what insights does a public choice analysis bring to this economic moment? One of the things that struck me was that in a pandemic, everyone's a libertarian because there were all these restrictions that made it hard to acquire things. And we said, well, get rid of these rules. We should get rid of them in an emergency. No, we shouldn't have had them in the first place because regulations are something like friction. So in a physical system, friction just... Uh, slows down the process and then burns up a lot of the energy as heat. So a lot of needless regulations or requiring permits or requirements to get the permission of the state or a license before you can go ahead with something. You have to go get some bureaucrats sign off in order to open a business or to get a new telephone. All of those things make it harder to start new businesses or to restart businesses that have been closed down because of the pandemic. So I think from my perspective, I'm sorry that we went through this. It was a catastrophe. But so many people have a new vision of how unnecessary and how harmful a lot of regulations were. And so the people were, are really mad. Well, the United States makes rapid tests for COVID. They're not available in the United States. They're, av they're available in all of South America and in Africa, and they're routinely used. But they're manufactured here. They're manufactured in the United States, but the Food and Drug Administration has not yet permitted them. So there's, I think, nearly 50 million people who have rapid COVID tests available, and they are made in the U.S. But we have this rule, and the 50 million people have used these. It's safe but they're not licensed in the United States. So I, the, the, my gleefulness about this is that everyone in a pandemic is at least a small L libertarian because you see the stupid restrictions that never had any logical character, but now that's brought into stark relief. I think it's really interesting in part because we see a similar par a parallel in the education space because suddenly so many families became instant homeschoolers or parents became instant classroom assistants supervising their children's work and you see na nationwide outcry at the, the curriculum the curriculum what and are the, you teaching my oh, kids yes and they wouldn't have known otherwise it's uh, an excellent parallel um, yeah, I've been following with great interest the uh, the events in Loudoun County over the last uh, really six weeks or so, and it fascinates me that all of a sudden the school board election for Loudoun County became national news, and that there's there's so much concern. I think it's. I, I hope that it becomes that that becomes normal that that parents want to remain involved in kids' education at this level. One of the reasons Terry McAuliffe lost the governor the governor's race in Virginia 
was when he actually said what he thought. I cannot believe he said that. <laughs> I don't think parents have any right to be telling us what to teach their kids. Holy smokes, Terry, that's really interesting. <laughs> Could not have handed a better soundbite to Glenn Youngkin. I mean, that was like a gift. Well, but the, the thing is, that's something that most people on the left think but just don't say. So the, the idea that we want elites, and we know who the elites are, they're the people who have PhDs in education, they will decide what is the right thing to teach so that we can have an educated populace. Instead of recognizing that there's an incentive problem when you have a state and the state tries to propagandize citizens to go along with what the state wants, that's a conflict of interest that's so severe, doesn't even pass the laugh test, which is why Terry McAuliffe got laughed at. There were one of my favorite pictures out of uh, the Virginia governor race was a actually a, a parent protest outside in Loudoun County where uh, there were there was a, a woman holding there were several women in the front of this of this parent protest. Uh, one woman held a sign that said, "I'm a lesbian and I want to know what my kids are studying in school." The next lady had a poster that said, "I'm a Democrat and I oppose this school board's indoctrination." That it just all of a sudden this penetrated to such a level of realism that even folks who believe several absurd things are like, no, 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 we want to be able to know what's happening In here. In a pandemic, everybody's a libertarian. So I'm, I'm sorry for all the damage that it caused, but if we can use some of the momentum that has been created by this sort of flash of realization, this is our time. Oh, so you see this as really, there, there's a lot of hope out of, oh, out of where Friedman we are currently. always thought that you need a crisis. And in fact, a, a, a number of people have said we shouldn't let a good crisis go to waste. But Milton Friedman thought that the reason you should develop policy proposals is when there's a crisis, you could say, we can try this. And so homeschooling augmented by videos that are professionally available that you can use for a curriculum and an alternative curriculum that you can get licensed as a group rather than everybody making it up on their own so you can achieve scale is the solution to this problem. And the, the public system is going to get hammered. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, of course, we're recording sitting here in Thales Academy and we've Thales has really pioneered something that uh, we think at least could ha has the potential to go national and are, are working to that end over the next several years, possibly decades, but hopefully a time frame of years. Uh, what if we could do high quality, low cost education at $6,000 a year where all of a sudden we can do an excellent education in a way that's affordable for the average family? But there are so many other people who are trying to derive the same thing to create a much more competitive educational space. I think I have a friend who was part of starting a group called Kepler Education that's working in the, the uh, Christian classical homeschool world. You've got so many different, uh, there's the OutSchool movement that launched as a startup out of an incubator program in the, on the West Coast a few years ago. It's no longer the sort of monopoly of the, of the public education system. There are so, so many options now for families. Those solutions are on the shelf. They weren't really operated at scale, and they weren't really seen by the education establishment as being a threat. But then the pandemic comes, and all of a sudden people say, I, either I don't agree with this curriculum, or it's just being so poorly taught, I'm not going to put my kid through this. Are there alternatives? Yes, there are. And now we're, we're getting to the point where in... It seems like for, for decades, like the charter school movement has existed, but all of a sudden now we've got interested parents. It's like, well, wait a minute, what, why don't we start something new? And that, 
uh, that idea of competition in there is we're we've been talking all day about antitrust and monopolies and competition. It seems to me that we're getting to a point where there could be a much more competition. I have a lot of colleagues who really admire northern European countries because they think they're socialist. Well, actually not. Sweden is one of the most capitalist countries in the world. Sweden's education system is interesting. It is 100% voucher and charter. Hmm. There are public schools, but they have to compete straight up. And these are backpack vouchers. If you go to this school, they get the money. And you go to that school, they get the money. So the public schools in Sweden are terrific. And so are the private schools because it's 100% voucher and charter. That is fascinating. It's not, I mean, if you want to call that socialism, and I suppose it is in a way, because the state provides the financing. But the idea that the state is the monopoly producer is something else. You want the state to provide the financing for education, great. If you want the state to be the monopoly producer, I don't even know what that is. I think we saw that reminds me of the debacle that was Common Core a few uh, about a decade ago, and the attempt to kind of centrally define the goal the idea was worthwhile of a, a common curriculum that the child left behind yep. had a laudable goal. Yeah, but it, it, implementation is where it fell apart. I think that's where we see the need for the price incentive and, and that information. And parental responsibility. You need parental responsibility and capacity. And so having state financing can make a tremendous difference. I think that's the sweet spot. Oh, so maybe that's the maybe that's the goal that that backpack vouchers. Oh, and somebody wants to come to Thales and they, you know, they get the money so poor people can come to Thales. Yep. Be fantastic. Well, as we're kind of beginning to wrap up our conversation today, I wanted to uh, go to some of that discussion of socialism, uh, in part because your most recent book uh, poses the, the title poses the question, is capitalism sustainable? Uh, and part of why that intrigued me was because there's a, I think there's a, we're in this weird era where it's the, the generation after the Cold War. I mean, my generation has grown up knowing that capitalism defeated Soviet Russia. And yet there's there keep being more people who think that socialism is actually the answer. Uh, we've got uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, the Green New Deal. Those have been major talking points over the last couple of years. So with all of that uh, as, as background, I wanted to ask you, um, do you think capitalism is an inherent good as an economic system? Is this a way of human action that we should try to defend and extend over time? There's a scene in the fourth Star Wars movie, so the first one that was released when this commander comes in and tells Grand Moff Tarkin, so we've analyzed their attack and we believe there is a danger should you get into your ship. And Grand Moff Tarkin says, at our moment of triumph, I think you overestimate their chances. That reminds me of the pro-capitalism people in the, the complacency of the pro-capitalism people in the period after uh, the University of Chicago won the Cold War. Mm. Because there is actually a legitimate danger from the criticisms of the left. Uh, the reason that there was a problem with the Death Star was there was a giant hole that went to the center, <laughs> the central reactor, and if you if you could drop a hand grenade down, it would blow the whole thing up. There is a problem with capitalism, and we didn't admit that. We just assumed that capitalism was what happened when the government does nothing. That's actually not true. There's a set of things that the government needs to do and needs to not do. So I think of it as being a visible hand that operates invisibly behind the invisible hand. So the invisible hand of the market needs certain preconditions and they need to be predictable. 
The problem that public choice tells us is that voters are rationally uninformed and uh, apathetic because they know their vote doesn't really matter, and so it's hard for voters to act together to change things. We know that members of the U.S. Senate, U.S. presidents, members of the U.S. House, all of them benefit from receiving campaign contributions from large corporations. And large corporations benefit from being able to get fake uh, subsidies and tax benefits from the government. So those three sets of actors, voters who are passive, corporate CEOs who know that they can get subsidies and tax benefits. Now, these are illegitimate, but they're legal. They're, it's called rent-seeking. Public choice people call this rent-seeking. A rent is an artificially created benefit that the state basically puts up for auction. And H.L. Mencken famously said, he, his definition of elections was advance auctions in stolen goods. So you've got two groups that are making bids saying, well, if you elect me, I'll give you all of this. But it's, it's using taxpayer money to buy votes from taxpayers. So the, the, the point is, I think that the pro-market people who were so complacent throughout the period of the 2000s mm. didn't recognize the extent to which there's a tendency towards crony capitalism. And we'll say, oh, that's not real capitalism. Okay, but if that's what capitalism becomes, mm. then we actually have a problem. And so I think that the best answer is, and this is something that I think uh, a lot of economists would object to, virtue. We actually need to have, we need to select corporate CEOs who want to behave ethically. Hmm. We want, we talked before, there may not be an enlightened statesman, but voters ought to care whether their U.S. senator actually behaves in accordance with virtue. So I have suggested that we need an index of corporate social responsibility, not how many trees have they planted, but how much government stuff have they accepted? Mm -hmm. Is, did they buy their corporate tax rate down with campaign contributions? Do they get subsidies like Elon Musk, one of the wealthiest people in the world, who's almost never really produced anything? He breaks even by producing cars. What he gets money from is selling basically fake carbon offsets, that the, the government has created this value, and it's, it's just an artificial rent. So the, the problem that I think is that, like Grand Moff Tarkin, there was so much complacency on the side of the pro-market people, not recognizing that we've really moved into a system where the government and corporations are so interconnected that it's going to be very hard to break. And that is an objection from the left that I think is correct. We need to credit it. We need to tell a story about how we are going to have virtuous corporate CEOs. We're going to have good members of Congress. We're going to have voters that recognize that this is a problem and look for corporate social responsibility with less rent-seeking. So unless we do those things, I actually have some sympathy from some of the criticisms of the left because they're right. What they see as capitalism is actually crony capitalism. And us making semantic distinctions about that doesn't change the fact we have a deeply cronious system. We have a sickness. And unless we act to excise that tumor, we're just going to go in a more cronious direction. 
Back in season one of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, I interviewed Bob Luddy about what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. And I was really both impressed and surprised to hear him say a lot of what you're describing, that he's found long-term success over, I wanna say about probably 60 years that he's been working in the marketplace and building businesses. Uh, he's found that virtue and integrity are the key and that being able to give a contract and to work with people who fulfill their contract in an ethically responsible way, that that is the key. And that there's a temptation he described to take shortcuts, but you really end up sacrificing relationships long-term for a very short-term monetary gain. I thought that was absolutely fascinating, in part because I think everything you're describing is what Adam Smith and I think to some extent David Hume were both presuming when they laid out the initial language of political economy in the 18th century. That Smith's division of labor and his, uh, everything he does in Wealth of Nations depends on what he develops in the theory of moral sentiments where we actually have to behave towards each other as human beings who want the good for ourselves and we also want each other's good, which gives us a road to what does that virtue look like. As so if we get to a point where we have a capitalism that is without virtue, it seems to me you're suggesting that that's not a sustainable capitalism. It's got to be it's got to be filled with virtuous actors for this to be a healthy good system for us to operate with in the market. The problem that you raise is an important one and that I think also was something Grand Moff Tarkin should have taken seriously as a problem. So the threat is that the pro market people all act as if all we need is self-interest. Well, in the theory of moral sentiments, Adam Smith has four sources of moral sentiments, and only the fourth is the decentralized, uh, well-contrived machine of the market. The first three all involve benevolence and fellow feeling and sympathy and the, uh, the impartial spectator. So if you just read Wealth of Nations, you'll get the idea that self-interest alone is enough to make markets work. And so Smith did famously say that beneficence alone was not enough to get our dinner from the butcher or the baker. But he didn't mean that we didn't need beneficence at all. So I worry that a lot of economists teach markets as if they were some sort of pristine system that required only self-interest. That's not Adam Smith. That's Bernard Mandeville. And Adam Smith was writing against Mandeville. Mandeville, in The Fable of the Bees, said that... Uh, People were just self-interested, and there's vice everywhere, and yet the system still works. Smith thought, no, there's actually a self-correcting system of propriety. And I think Smith would be appalled at the extent to which we have used Smithian reasons but gone in a Mandevillian direction. Mm. We need to get back to the essential claim that Smith made, which was beneficence is actually the important central activity. Virtue is what's important, our sense of propriety and how we judge each other's actions. However, operating at scale to achieve the gains of division of labor, sure, then we need markets. But they're embedded in a social structure that actually requires virtue. We've lost sight of that. That's really intriguing, in part because I think it, it brings us back to our, we've been talking mostly about questions of economics and politics, but it really comes back as well to a question of education and how do we bring up the next generation to see the good of virtue and to see the, the necessity of virtue for their own flourishing. Um, now, I wonder, does this relate at all to your work in the um, politics, philosophy and economics program at Duke? Is that is that is trying to help students encounter and develop virtue? Is that part of that program? 
I was catechized as an economist, but I have been apostate from that path for a long time because I think that economists in some ways are the problem because economists act as if self-interest alone is enough. And liberalism has become a caricature of itself. And I think some of the new national conservatives are right about this, where we say, whatever you want to do is fine. It's just up to you. Well, actually, there are certain eternal moral truths that actually matter. And worrying about the things that have plagued philosophers for 3,000 years and actually wrestling with those questions is important. It's not true that whatever conclusion you reach, yeah, that's up to you. It's all a pure moral relativism. I'm not saying we need to have a Sharia law or Christian law. What I'm saying is you need to wrestle with those questions and decide what virtue is. And it needs to be in a way that is informed by a reading and discussion of the classics. If you do those things, it actually makes, it conditions what you think of as your self-interest. My self-interest is not my narrow self-interest. So if you talk to, to Bob Luddy or John Allison from BB&T, uh, they'll say self-interest for a business person is to create value for their customers. And those are the people that really succeed in capitalism. Not what you're trying to do is get yours and screw everybody else. That's not what self-interest is. That's greed. And so we have, I blame economists. The reason I'm trying to do PPE is to correct some of the mistakes that have been made by economists to teach an, a morally impoverished version of liberalism. So you would still hold to the classical liberal goals of, of a uh, uh, less focus on borders and the benefits of exchange for reducing the likelihood of war as sort of a general valuation of freedom rather than constraint, but you would situate that inside of a kind of a robust study of the human person, human nature, what's actually happening when we interact with each other and what what are our responsibilities that that, that question of responsibility is perhaps as important as the question of our rights. It's completely ignored in most teachings of liberalism in the United States today. All it is is about rights, no sense of responsibility. And that's a mistake. Well, Dr. Munger, I so much appreciate your time today. Uh, thank you for joining me here on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Um, where can people find and follow your work online? Probably the easiest place is my Twitter account, which is just at Mungowitz, M-U-N-G-O-W-I-T-Z. And uh, does, does, I heard you mention this before we started recording. Does, does, that, uh, does that handle indicate you're a long-term fan of, of wrestling? Um, actually, I never thought Twitter would become what it did, or I would have done something more similar, <laughs> more serious. In 2008, I started using Twitter, and it happened that my nickname at the University of Texas was Mungowitz because there was a locally famous professional wrestler named Killer Grease Mungowitz. Um, and his name was right above mine in what is now an ancient thing called the phone book. So when friends would open to this page to look up my phone number, immediately they saw Killer Grease Mungowitz. And that very quickly became my nickname. Um, I would not pick it. So now I have 12,000 followers, so I'm stuck with. But but yes, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of Mungowitz. And with any hope, that will help the viewers remember if they want to look it up. It's at Mungowitz, the famous professional wrestler. 
Fantastic. Well, here on the Optimistic Curmudgeon, we're always looking to have good conversations with people whose expertise lets them bring insight into areas of confusion. I think today you've pointed us directly to where we can find hope in our, our confused time. So thank you so much for joining us here. And thank you listeners for joining us for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to or watch this episode and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another conversation on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. Uh, We're on Twitter at OptimisticC3, on Instagram at OptimisticCurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at Facebook.com slash the-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, OptimisticCurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good, love the true, and pursue the beautiful.